Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, we normally begin the podcast with a little bit of banter and what you and I at least like to think are funny comments. Um, But today that doesn't feel appropriate. Uh, Very sad news indeed reaching the boxing world on Saturday that former middleweight champion of the world, charter member of the Four Kings and one of the very greatest boxers ever walked the earth, the one and only marvelous Marvin Hagler died at the age of 66 and honestly it feels weird saying that 24 hours later it just feels surreal. Yeah. Um, details are a little bit unclear the first news was a post from his wife to his official Facebook fan page announcing that he had died unexpectedly at home. A New Hampshire TMZ later quoted his son as saying he developed breathing problems and been taken to hospital and that he died there a few hours later. Uh, Marvin Hagler was born May 1954, Newark, New Jersey, but will forever be associated with Brockton, Massachusetts, where he and his family moved when he was a teenager. It, It was there where after being roughed up in the street, he walked into a boxing gym owned by Pat and Goody Petronelli, and history was made. Uh, he and the Petronellis would be together throughout Hagler's career. Uh, he turned pro in 1973, became undisputed middleweight champion in 1980, and remained so until he walked away from the sport after his controversial loss to Sugar Ray Leonard in 1987, whereupon, as we all know, he spent some time in Italy acting in spaghetti westerns, uh, and largely withdrew from view, uh, appearing only for occasional special events, such as being inducted into the Nevada and International Boxing Halls of Fame. Uh, He carried an enormous chip on his shoulder throughout his career, uh, to which that Leonard loss only added. He felt that he was never given any opportunity, but had to fight for every chance he got, and he wasn't wrong. Um, As has frequently been noted, he had three strikes against him. He was black, he was southpaw, and he was good. Oh, and boy, was he ever good. Holy crap, Marvin Hagler could fight. <laughs> yep. um, there are a lot of middle-aged boxing fans weeping this weekend. And that's because we're the ones who got to see him live and in his pomp, who got to see just how good he was. Uh, it's been, you, Eric, yours and my misfortune to note the passing of too many boxing figures over the years we've been podcasting together. But... This one is really tough. This one hurts. Yeah, yeah. Th- this was just completely out of the blue and uh, yeah. so sad and upsetting. And not just for me, not just for you, for everyone. Hagler was one of those fighters who, particularly after his career was over, had like a unanimous approval rating. Like, yes. you, you know, you just never heard anyone say, oh, I hated Marvin Hagler. Hagler was overrated. You know, he, <laughs> he was one of those rare boxers, rare athletes, really, who the options were basically either he was one of your all-time favorites or else you liked him just fine and you respected the hell out of him. There, yeah. There's no like lower third tier with, with Marvin Hagler. Of course, his legacy is largely contained in two fights, the Hearns fight, which is one of the greatest wars in the history of the sport, and the Leonard fight, which was one of the biggest boxing events ever and perhaps the most debated fight of all time. Mm. Uh, He had a whole Hall of Fame-worthy career before those fights, uh, which were his last and his third to last, but those are the ones that endure for anyone outside the real hardcore fight fans, and it's the Leonard fight that opened the door for my one and only time meeting Marvin and interviewing Marvin. Um, I've talked about this before. 
when Grantland.com was launching, I got the assignment to write an oral history of that fight. And there are, of course, two interviews you can't do it without. Leonard was easy to get. Hagler was not. Uh, he, <laughs> he never really was into doing media at any point in his life. Um, and here it is some 24 years after this fight. He's retired. He's content. But he's still bitter about that one result. Why is he going to say yes to my request for this interview? <laughs> um, his representative, basically his shield against doing press, that was her main job. Um, but she turned me down. Uh, I followed up. I begged because I needed the work and I knew there was no article without Hagler. So I stayed on her for months. And finally, she gave me word on less than a day's notice that if I would drive up to Canastota the Friday of Hall of Fame weekend in 2011, he would do the interview. Uh, so uh -huh. with uh, with the brophies at the Hall of Fame coordinating, it happened uh, and it was great. And he was everything you want him to be. Honest, personable in his way but also intimidating. And and like I said, everything you want him to be, you actually want him to be intimidating. You, you want it to sort of fit your image of him. He wasn't yeah. a jerk at all. Uh, he was a nice guy, but he was deadly serious most of the interview, and it was almost certainly his least favorite subject in the world that we were talking <laughs> yeah. about. Um, if you reread the oral history, you'll see he was absolutely still bitter that they gave Leonard the decision that Sugar Ray always got all the breaks and Marvin didn't, uh, that Leonard fought in the style he did and was rewarded for it. Uh, but looking back over the interview, one quote really stood out to me this weekend, and it was him putting a positive spin on this fight that, uh, other than the money he made, it, this fight is largely a negative for him. Uh, but he said, it's probably a good thing that people still talk about the fight, because in a way... Boxing keeps you alive. Um, wow. Yeah. So Marvin Hagler, of course, is is suddenly gone, um, but he's far from forgotten. Uh, oh, he nice. won't be for quite some time. They'll reference Hagler Hearns. They'll debate Hagler Leonard, and they'll call him one of the all-time middleweight greats for as long as people are talking about boxing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we are unapologetically going to be talking about Marvin Hagler a fair bit over yes. the course of this podcast. And yeah, we make absolutely no apologies for that. Uh, he, I think he really hit it on the head there when yet just nobody, nobody dogged Marvin Hagler. Like everybody respect. He was the epitome of what you want a professional prize fighter to be. And not mm -hmm. just because he was incredibly good at it because he was, but good Lord, the man would fight anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and did fight anybody. Um, yeah, he. Uh, it was interesting, you know, to, to, to hear you talk about that, about what it's like to meet him in person. The fact that he was, you know, both a good dude, but also really intimidating. Um, uh, we normally do the tweet of the week later on in the podcast, but I wanted to bring it up here. And I've actually got two that I wanted to, to, to throw at you here, which sort of hmm. show those two sides of him, actually. Uh, needless to say, once the word got out, social media was absolutely full of all kinds of, of comments and, and recollections of Marvin Hagler. And there are two that I picked because they both like showed that there's those different sides that you sort of alluded to here. One was from our friend Dick Hercules, who just posted a, uh, a quote from Marvin. The only difference between street fighting and boxing is there's a ref there to stop me from killing you. Um, <laughs> to which he added RIP to an absolute fucking legend, which yeah. showed you that one side of him and then the other one was from our very good friend and podcast regular Stephen Breadman Edwards who wrote uh, mm. great Hagler story 
after he became a seven-figure fighter, his managers slash trainers tried to tell him that they take a flat rate, less dollars, instead of the agreed-upon percentage. Hagler got upset and told them they're taking the same percent as always, and if they try to take less, he's firing them. Hashtag man's man. To which actually top-ranked matchmaker Bruce Trampler responded and said, yeah, that's true. Bob Arams told that story several times uh, as he helped mediate their quote-unquote dispute. (laughs) Um, And to which uh, uh, Trampler added, I guess it's three tweets here. Uh, There are three photos in Arams' office of boxes he promoted and truly loved. Ali... Foreman and Marvin Hagler, true warriors. Wow. There you go. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. And I, I happen to see both of those tweets because I follow both of those guys uh, on Twitter as well. I'm, I'm almost surprised it took this long uh, before Dick Hercules got a tweet of the week. I know, <laughs> right? Just for pure humor, he is like one of my favorite Twitter follows when it comes to boxing. Although this one was was less about the humor and just a, just a great quote there. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, that one from Breadman, that's, that's Hagler. He was just a man in the truest sense of the word and uh and just loyalty was something he was really known for i mean he was with the petronellis his whole career as you said when you were running down that that uh biographical sketch there at the beginning that's that's who he was and i don't know that i've heard of any other boxers who got up to that multi-million dollar level who uh insisted (laughs) on a deal like that (laughs) but uh yeah that really says a lot about marvelous marvin Hagler. Yeah, I saw. I think it was Evan Corrin from Top Rank uh, tweet, tweeted also uh, a little thing that uh, um, uh, when our, our good friend Lee Samuels was uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, uh, Hagler said to him, he was there that weekend and was just like, stick with me. I got gotcha. you. Hmm. And he stayed by Lee's side all all <laughs> during that the whole thing to like make sure that Lee didn't get nervous or anything. That was just the kind of guy he was by all accounts. So wow. yep. uh, it just makes me all the more sorry. I did not get the chance to meet him. I didn't know him personally, uh, but I do strongly suspect that right about now, if not earlier, he'd be urging us to shut up and just get on with the fights. <laughs> so let's do that. Yes. Um, because there was plenty of in-ring action on Saturday night, including 12 rounds in Dallas that are going to take an awful lot of beating for fight of the, the year honors. Um, uh, there was also a Showtime Championship Boxing triple header from the fight sphere at the Mohegan Sun, uh, headlined by David Benavides beating the brakes of a brave Ronald Ellis. Uh, but that night at the Mohegan began in unexpectedly concussive fashion. As Terrell Gaucher knocked out Jamonte Clark in the second round of a scheduled 10-round, 154-pound event. Uh, Gaucher moving to 22-2-1 with 11 KOs, while Clark falls to 15-2-1 with 7 KOs. And in the co-main at the Mohegan, lightweight Isok Cruz moved to 21-1-1 with 15 KOs by pounding out a unanimous 12-round decision over Matias Romero, who falls to 24-1, 8 KOs. Scores, which included a one-point uh, deduction uh, for Isak Cruz, were 114-113, 115-112, and a seemingly wide 118-109 from the normally unimpeachable Steve Weisfeld. Uh, personally, I had it 116-111 for Cruz. Uh, I only gave Romero one round after the first two. Uh, how did you score it? And what were your thoughts about those two openers on Saturday night's card? So I don't think uh, our boy Steve Weisfeld is all that impeachable here. Uh, I, I was much closer to seeing the fight like he did than okay. I was to the 114-113 score, for example. Uh, I had it 117-110, so okay. right in between you and Weisfeld. Uh, I thought it was a clear win for Cruz. Uh, I just found it hard 
to give all that many rounds to Romero when, yeah, he was effective in spots, but he was moving backward and doing so much holding. Yep. You know, when a round is close, I'm rarely going to give it to the guy who's fighting that way. Uh, Cruz didn't look great, but Romero presents a rough style matchup. Yep. And uh, it was interesting. You mentioned the the point that Cruz lost for a low blow. I think that was probably warranted, but it was interesting that he lost a point and Romero never did lose a point yeah. for all the holding he was doing. Yeah. Um, in any case, intriguing fight, competitive fight. Cruz showed a lot of tenacity and determination and presumably his team will try to keep him away from movers and huggers going yeah. forward. I would think, um, as for Gachet, uh, wow. There, there were a lot of ways that I could see this fight going, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but Gachet ending it in the second round was not one of them. Uh, put bluntly. I think Gachet saved his career on Saturday yeah. night. Um, excellent win for a guy who was about out of chances. If he produces anything less than the excellent win that he did indeed produce, that was a fantastic straight counter right hand that put mm-hmm. Clark down and he got up really wobbly. Gachet backed him into the ropes immediately with another straight, right. And Arthur McCanny jr. Moved right in to stop it. And not that it was a bad stoppage. I might've let it go another punch or two, but it was a reasonable place to jump in and end it. But I got to ask, who the hell was this imposter referee and what has he done with the real Arthur McCanty Jr.? <laughs> this is twice in one week that McCanty is stopping fights as early as possible. Weird. I I don't know what's come over him. Some weird invasion of the body snatcher stuff going on here. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move on to the main event where David Benavidez did what David Benavidez does best. He walked down Ronald Ellis and ignored all of his own height and reach advantages to get inside and be a destroyer and beat Ellis up until referee Johnny Callis stepped in at 2.03 of the 11th round. Full credit to Ellis, who showed one hell of a chin and never wilted, even as Benavides' pressure steadily mounted. Despite suffering an ultimately one-sided defeat, it was arguably Ellis' best performance on Showtime, and he'll surely earn some respect for the way he performed. But he may decide he doesn't want to fight on Showtime again, <laughs> as with the loss, his record falls to 18-2-2 with 12 KOs, comprised of 15-0 off Showtime, but just 3-2-2 on the home network. Uh, Benavidez moves to 24-0 with 21 KOs and puts himself in position to face one of the other big names at 168 pounds, uh, Caleb Plant. Jamal Charlo, who is at middleweight, but who Benavidez is trying to lure up in weight. And of course, Canelo Alvarez. Kieran, who would you like to see Benavidez fight next? Who do you expect to see him fight next? And what did you think of his performance against Ronald Ellis? Man, he is such a unique fighter, isn't he, David Benavidez? I mean, first of all, he has the closest thing to a dad bod I've ever seen on a 24-year-old <laughs> non-heavyweight professional boxer. Yeah. He just has the weirdest physique. And it's hard not to imagine that when he retires, he's going to have to be careful if he doesn't want to turn back into that 200-plus-pound mm. kid that we were talking to him about uh, a couple of weeks ago. And his style, yeah, his style is also there like in, in, in a class of its own. He does have a terrific jab when he uses it. And there were times, particularly late in the fight, where he he just, you know, leaned on it and used it tremendously effectively. But he's not like this kind of guy who, you know, you talked about him not using his height advantages. And indeed, he's not, he doesn't like use that long jab to sort of set up his other punches or or, or anything like that. It's almost like he switches between the two. It's like, right, I'll power punch for a while. Nope, now I'll use my jab. It's, he doesn't have like sleek footwork. He's not looking to cut off the ring. 
he literally, as you said, walks his foes down and then goes to work on them. He squares up. He throws a ton of hurtful punches, almost dares his opponent to hit him back. And when he does that, which he almost invariably does, then his opponent leaves himself open to be hit. You know, Ellis clocked him flush plenty of times, uh, even during the last couple rounds when he, when he had very little strength left. But of course, in doing so, you know, you just saw Benavidez kind of smile and, and work on the openings that that presented. Yeah. Um, and yet, at the same time, when he wants to deploy his defense, Benavidez, it's a pretty good defense. He's got quite nice little head movement there. And is and is, you know, and he's always in position after slipping punches to deliver punches of his own. Um and he is, and I think we've used this analogy before, he's a little bit like a steam train. He takes a while to get going, and then he just gets his head of steam. Mm. And and then good luck trying to stop him. Um, you know, he digs to the body, he switches upstairs, he fires jabs to the face, he could throw one punch after the other, or explode in a sudden flurry. Um you know, look at it. It's very interesting to look at his power punch connect numbers over the course of the fight. In the first round, he landed just three power punches, according to CompuBox, compared to six from Ellis. But then he slowly started to get the engine running. 18 power punches landed in the second, 27 in the third. Then in the sixth, he really turned it up, landing 40 power punches to 11 from Ellis. In round eight, it was 43 to eight. And then when he decided to just go for the kill, he landed 45 power punches without any reply in just two-thirds of the 11th round um he's just a unique and challenging puzzle there are times when he look especially early on in fights he looks so ordinary so hittable and then he gathers momentum and he looks unstoppable um and, and it was funny i was thinking like how more than a really most top level boxers he just looks like he's going in for a street fight he just walks up to you and just lets the punches go um so, yeah, really interesting and uh, unique challenge for anyone uh, that he's facing. And who's he going to face next? I don't know. Um, because he missed weight and lost his belt two fights ago, he's, you know, taken himself out of the opportunity to be fighting Canelo next. That's why Canelo's decided he wants all the belts, and that's why he's facing Billy Joe Saunders. Right. Assuming Canelo wins that fight... I don't know why. I just have a suspicion. You mentioned Caleb Plant. I just have this feeling that Caleb Plant is going to be the next one. Right. Um, and so, and if he is, then obviously Plant's not going to fight David Benavidez, of right. course. You know, maybe Benavidez is next in line for that. Or, you know, uh, but so if Canelo's not next, and, and if it isn't Plant, who's next? I, I don't know that Charlo will want to come up and face him because Charlo's going to think he might be in the Canelo sweepstakes as well. Mm. So... I wonder, you know, maybe while all this sorts itself out, because I don't think anyone's going to want to take themselves out of a Canelo fight. Maybe he's we're going to be looking at another Ronald Ellis type fight. Perhaps someone like a Callum Smith, if the promotional differences could be worked out. You know, it could be an intriguing matchup. They're both physically similar. And, right. you know, maybe Benavidez might say, OK, Canelo, we saw what you did with Callum Smith. I'm going to try and do one better and stop him or something like that and make the case for you to fight me. It's a bit of a risk doing that, but maybe. Um, otherwise, I don't know, maybe Daniel Jacobs, which would be dangerous but winnable for Benavides, but I'm not sure what the incentive would be for Jacobs. So I kind of suspect that both he and Caleb Plant are going to be doing keep-busy-ish fights until the Canelo opportunity presents itself, I think. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, Keith Eidek when he was on who expressed pretty strong confidence that, that Plant yes. is the guy they're lining up for September. So, yeah, it's one of those things where in a perfect world in which boxing had 
a Dana White type, not not Dana White. Uh, I'm not necessarily a fan of him, but a Dana White type who runs the sport uh, and tries to make the best fight. Yes. Yeah, sure. There you go. And but just one person who knows what they're doing and really controls the whole sport. If we had someone like that, the move would be to match Benavidez and Plant, winner gets Canelo. I think that's absolutely what UFC would do with a situation like this. But yeah, that's not how boxing works. And if Plant is indeed in line to get Canelo, he ain't risking that. So yeah, I'm not sure what the meaningful fight is for Benavidez under these circumstances. We just kind of have to hope he can get some sort of meaningful fight this year while waiting his turn. Yeah, indeed. All right, let's check in. And what Saturday night's action means for our picks contest. At the start of the night, you were leading by 15 points to 11. And it has to be said, this wasn't a very high-scoring night for either of us. Um, the opener, which both of us were extremely confident would go the distance, <laughs> was the shortest fight of the night. But at least I scored one point for picking Gaucher, whereas you wound up with a big fat goose egg for plumping for Clark. Um, the co-main, which we couldn't see really ending any other way than a cruise KO went the distance so we both got one point for picking the right winner but struck out on the manner of victory uh we each get two points for benavidez stopping ellis although neither of us gained the three bonus points for picking the correct round although i came close oh i came close <laughs> uh, i picked the 10th and the fight was stopped in the 11th i'm going to have to have words with courage shabalala for not stopping that earlier um anyway the net result is that i added four points to my t- total while you had three which brings the scores now to 18 to 15 in your favor. And what does that mean, Eric? <laughs> uh, I, I, I suppose that means you got me right where you want me, huh? Exactly. <laughs> well, well, wait a minute. See, I thought you had me right where you wanted me when you were down by four. So now that you're only down by three, don't you have me a little less where you want me? Or do I just not understand oh, no, how this all works? Time has moved on. It's all very time relative, you see. <laughs> okay. It's the, it's the, it's all the new math the kids are it's talking about. It's all part about, of a plan. Oh, are they? Are they calling that off? I don't know. It's all part of a plan. All right. Plus, if you yeah. say so. Uh, yeah. I, I won't mention how the plan worked out the last two years of uh, our picks competition. Playing the long game, Eric. Playing the long game. <laughs> yes. Very long indeed. <laughs> all right. Let's move on. Uh, this is Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Showtime is in the name. We do give a little extra shine to what's happening on Showtime. But I think it would be kind of tough to make the case that the biggest or best fight of this past weekend was on Showtime. Uh, that's because in Dallas, on zone, the much-anticipated rematch, eight years and four months in the making between Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez and Juan Francisco Estrada, somehow managed to not only meet expectations, but exceed them. This is the clear early frontrunner for fight of the year. This was not only an all-action fight. It was an incredibly skillful all-action fight. It reminded me of another great fight between little guys uh, that I reference on occasion, Ricardo Lopez, Rosendo Alvarez too, which stands out in my memory because it was a sensational brawl in which neither guy ever stopped being technically exceptional at any point in the fight. A sensational war with no sloppiness. That was Estrada Gonzalez too as well. The strategy was right there to be seen. Estrada tried to lure Gonzalez in so he could strafe him with straight counters, while Chocolatito just kept coming, offering the subtlest little feints that enabled him to land power punch after power punch. The two men combined to throw a total of 2,529 punches, a CompuBox record for the 115-pound division. And of those 2,529 
1,700 were power punches. Estrada threw a career-high 1,212 total punches, of which he landed 314, or 26%. Gonzalez landed 391 of 1,317 punches, or 30%. The punch output remained high throughout. In the 12th round, they combined to land 95 of 308 punches, and 90 of those 95 connects (laughs) were power punches. Uh, That round, the 12th, was a round of the year candidate, as was the sixth. Mm-hmm. This was just such a delight to watch. <laughs> I'm in awe of these guys. Uh, you said last week that they're both future Hall of Famers. And when you said it, in my mind, I was thinking Chocolatito, yes, definitely. But Estrada, maybe, I don't know. He's kind of on the fence. I'm glad I didn't jump in and object last week because uh, being one half of a fight this great probably punches his ticket, gets him off the fence, if indeed he was on the fence. Um, Kieran, your thoughts on this sensational fight, and what are the odds that halfway through March we already have our KO of the year and now our fight of the year winners? Yeah. Um, it's entirely possible, isn't it? Um, you know, the KO of the, the KO of the year leader, obviously is Oscar Valdez knocking out Miguel Burchell, which in our books anyway, has so far holding off the challenge of, of Brandon Lee sparking Sam Tia. Right. Um, this, like you said, it's going to take some beating as fight of the year. Um, the only thing it has going against it from that end of the year awards thing is that it was 47 minutes of drama as opposed to explosive moments of drama if you know what i mean there was like it wasn't a fight that went long and then somebody suddenly having to battle back from being hurt or get up from multiple knockdowns and knock somebody else down and sometimes those kind of high drama fights or or high moments of drama fights are the ones that pick up fight of the year honors um so no offense to ivan baronchik and jose cepeda but there's a reason that i called their outing last year the most batshit crazy fight of the year rather than the best this was what a best fight of the year looks like. This was a truly exceptional quality prize fight. It went by so damn fast as well, which is always mm-hmm. a good sign. Um, I can barely even conceive of what it takes to do what those two men did on Saturday night. I mean, just try throwing 1,100 punches at a heavy bag over 47 minutes, let alone right. at another human being. <laughs> let alone another human being who's throwing just as many punches back at you. This was so much more, like you said, than than two men with high punch output. They were throwing and landing while constantly setting little traps for each other mm-hmm. over and over, each man trying to bait the other. Like you said, Estrada was trying to get Gonzalez to come onto him, and that's what Gonzalez kind of wanted, too. So he knew what he was doing, and he said, yeah, screw it. That's what I want. So he just kept going in and throwing, like you said, those subtle feints that sometimes caused Estrada to begin throwing the counters before Gonzalez had thrown the punch he was aiming to counter, which would leave would leave Estrada slightly exposed. But, you know, at the same time, Estrada had the strength to absorb those shots and immediately return fire. It was just, it was one of those extraordinary fights where in many ways, each man was doing what he wanted. It was just the case of which guy got to do what he wanted more than the other guy. Right. Um, I, I'm not normally one of those guys who sits, who likes to rewatch fights over and over. Um, am I make an exception for this one? <laughs> I, um, not least because I kind of want to go through it at points in slow motion or in, or pause and just watch all the stuff that was happening in there. Um, so much happened at such high speed that a lot of it flew by unnoticed. Um, and I do want to do a, give a shout out. Actually, I thought this shows where having somebody like Sergio Mora, who's not just a boxer but a cerebral one 
really helped the broadcast. I thought he did a very good job of making so many little nuanced observations that I think very few non-boxers, no matter how many fights they've watched or talked about or broadcast or written about, could make. I, there was that one observation in particular that he made about Chocolatito throwing from the point of chin to point of chin. And what he was saying was he was pointing to his economy of movement, that he wasn't like rearing back. It was just right. like, boom, straight punt. Good, really good observation that I think it would be very hard for a non-boxer to, to make. And I think that helped the overall, certainly from my personal perspective, uh, enjoyment of the whole thing. Um, it, was just an, it was just an incredible night all round. Um, with possibly one caveat, not to pour cold water on a remarkable fight, but the sharpier among you will have noticed we haven't discussed the result yet. <laughs> um, Estrada was the one who claimed the win by split decision by scores of 113-115, 115-113, 117-111 <laughs> to climb to 42-3 and with 28 KOs, while Gonzalez falls to 50-3 and with 41 KOs. I think the consensus, certainly on my couch, at the DAZN announce table and on Twitter, was that Chocolatito had edged the fight. But that, you know, 115, 113 for, for El Gallo was, was, was certainly acceptable. But the 117, 111 there from Carlos Suarez has received plenty of opprobrium. Um, I do have some thoughts about this, but what is your take on the scorecards and the results? So I'm less bothered by that 117-111 than most people seem to be. Um, I don't think it's a great scorecard. I had it 114-114 myself. Uh, so so clearly I prefer the two 115-113 tallies. Sure. But I get 117-111. I don't think it's crazy the way that the Adelaide Bird 118-110 in Canelo Triple G was. There were nine rounds in the fight that I marked as close. So, you know, some of those I gave to Estrada, some I gave to Gonzalez. I looked back, how many rounds did I give to Chocolatito and not mark them as close? Two. Uh, So if that's the case, I can get to 117, 111. Uh, This was a really difficult fight to score. In a lot of rounds, Chocolatito was slightly out hustling Estrada, but Estrada was, to my eyes, landing the slightly sharper and cleaner blows. Um, So to quote Barry Tompkins at the end of some other fight that people were talking about a bit on Saturday, how do you like it? That that (laughs) applied to this one. A, A lot of those rounds, it's just, what do you like? How do you like it? What are you looking for? This was one of those fights where anyone afterward who really digs in and tries to tell you my scorecard is correct. Fighter X definitely deserved to win. Settle down. I, I, I guarantee if you watch the fight again and erase your memory of how you scored it the first time, you're going to change your scoring in at least two or three yeah. rounds the next time that you score it. Um, you can hate 117-111. I get that. I don't personally hate it. I would say I mildly dislike it. But yeah. uh, this was certainly no robbery in my view. Uh, Chocolatito has two hard luck losses now, but a hard luck loss isn't the same as a screw job loss. I see no reason in this case to let the scoring of the fight be a bigger story than the remarkable show that Estrada and Gonzalez put on. So I'm, I'm glad that we led with a lot of talk about the fight before yep. getting into the scoring. But uh, you said you had some some thoughts on, on the scoring. So what's your take? I have simultaneously in my head two strongly contrary positions. One is that I really thought that Chocolatito won the fight. Um, the same way that you mentioned the Tristraket thing. I, I thought he won the first Tristraket fight. And that as great as having a record of 50 and 3 is, I feel like he should be 52 and 1. Right. 
and I feel like it was very close. I had it 115, 113. Can totally see 115, 113 for Estrada. But I also, like yourself, you can have a 117, 111 card. It doesn't mean you think that one guy was clearly superior. This is a sometimes a consequence of the 10-point must system, mm-hmm. right? In that those guys are scoring 12 separate rounds. They're not scoring a fight. You can think it's an even fight, but that fighter A is doing a smidgen more in a bunch of rounds than fighter B. And you end up with what appears to be a really lopsided scorecard. And it's just, he, he probably didn't see a very different fight. It's just right. that in some rounds, he just saw Estrada doing that little bit more. There was a point after about five rounds, I think, where I thought this is a really close fight, but I had Chocolatito up 4-1. And I thought, mm. well, that just doesn't seem to be the way the fight is going. But... You know, sometimes if you're doing round by round, that's the way it is. So, yeah, and I think that that 117-111 card is what has gotten some people quite upset about the decision. If it had been another 115-113 one, it would have been fine. Um, In the same way that the first fight between, uh, you know, you mentioned Adelaide Bird's card, Canelo and Triple G in a draw was a perfectly fine result. It's just that her card threw off the perception of that. And I think that Carlos Suarez did the same. But I agree with you that... I thought the Chocolatito won the fight, but I thought he won it just, and it was, I'm sorry, if you, yeah, if you say absolutely categorically that in the midst of that fusillade of punches that they all were throwing at each other, that you know precisely who won what round by how (laughs) much, uh, yeah, I, I would question that, yeah. All right, let, let's talk also about the co-main event on that DAZN card. Yeah. Uh, Jessica McCaskill repeated her upset August win over Cecilia Brakus to retain her undisputed women's welterweight title. Here, I thought the sco- scorecards were much more off the mark yeah. than in the main event. Uh, McCaskill won 100 to 89, 99 to 90, and 98 to 91. Only the last of those was remotely defensible to me. Uh, there was a point deduction for Brakus for holding that proved immaterial with cards that wide. The key really was in rounds one and two. McCaskill hurt Brakus in both rounds, and I mm. guess the judges never shook that from their minds and mm. didn't quite give Brakus much credit when she rallied to, in my view, make it a close fight by the end. But no doubt McCaskill was the deserving winner here more conclusively than the first time they fought. Kieran, how close or wide did you see it? What's next for McCaskill? And what now for Brakus, who has lost two in a row, both to McCaskill, after starting her career 36-0? and Yeah, no, I had it more of like a 7-3 a to three kind of fight. I thought that McCaskill jumped out to an early lead, and then Brakus kind of made it a much more even fight down, down the stretch. But I did think that Jessica McCaskill won that fight. Um... You know, sometimes being like that, for want of a better phrase, that classy, classic boxers, the the worst kind of foe is that mauling, brawling, far less technically gifted opponent, isn't it? And and I think that's clearly the case here. Just McCaskill is just the nightmare opponent for Cecilia Breakers. She, you know, she was happy uh, down the stretch to, to dig her toes into the canvas and really try to mix it up because she really didn't have any alternative. Right. But you know she would much have preferred to be able to box and keep McCaskill at range and and, uh, and sort of get her way to a victory that way. Um, McCaskill's just the opposite of what Breakers is. You know, brawling's what she does. And in particular, that's that slightly herky-jerky, hard-to-time, overhand right. That's her bread-and-butter punch, and she would just keep throwing that and throwing that and throwing that. She just harassed and bullied Breakers out of this. So I guess the obvious 
opportunity now is for McCaskill to face Katie Taylor, mm -hmm. uh, either with Taylor, who's a lightweight moving up or McCaskill moving down or they meet in the middle. Um, great opportunity for Jessica McCaskill, that's for sure, who was like nowhere near this kind of fight until uh, until she fought Cecilia Bracus in August. Uh, as for Bracus, I don't know what's next for her. After that first loss, she seemed she was musing uh, about retirement. Right. Not this time. She said she wanted a third fight, and I, I, there's no point in that. Um, she's still a name, though. She's still very good. Um, it's just that McCaskill appears to be her nemesis. Um, I also think maybe, you know, women's boxing, I think, is, is improving rapidly so that there was a period where Breakers was quite obviously superior to her challengers and the pack's catching up and she's getting a little bit older, too. Right. Um, so, you know, she she's. Uh, she's still got plenty of opportunities to earn plenty of money, especially if Jessica McCaskill does go back down, does go down to fight Katie Taylor. She can win a belt again. Uh, plenty of options still there for Cecilia Breakers. But I think, yeah, her days of being the clearly dominant uh, fighter in and around her weight division are, are, are gone. Yeah, I think the, the pack has caught up to her a lot, and I think she has come back to the pack significantly. Yes. She It just really stood out to me watching this how much stiffer and slower she looks yes. now than when in her true prime, and, and her, her head movement is all but gone, and that used to be something she was pretty good at, so... Uh, yeah, I kind of I kind of wish she would be at least be musing about retirement uh, as she was after yeah. the the first fight because uh, I don't think it's going to get better for her from here on out. But that said, she probably still can beat all but one or two fighters in this division. So we'll yeah. see where she goes from here. Indeed. Uh, let's look ahead to some fights that are coming up very soon. Uh, Ring City USA's second Puerto Rico card has a new main event as Alberto Machado now takes on Mexico's Angel Ferrero, uh, Fierro, excuse me, after scheduled opponent Hector Tanajaras was forced to withdraw uh, because of a COVID test. Uh, that will be live on NBC Sportsnet on Thursday. Then on Saturday, we have a lot to look forward to. In London on the zone, Lawrence Oakley takes on Krzysztof Glowacki for a cruiserweight belt. Later that day, also on the zone. I know you and I are both looking forward to this. Virgil Ortiz Jr. returns with clearly the toughest test of his career against Maurice Hooker. And on ESPN, uh, Arta Baturbiev, who I know we both love to watch, uh, defends his light heavyweight belts against Adam Danes. Uh, plenty to look forward to there. Uh, is there anything you're particularly looking forward to out of that batch? Yeah, I mean, I think Ortiz Hooker is clearly the biggest and best of those fights. Uh, although I'm so sold on Ortiz that I view him as a huge favorite, even though yeah. this is a major step up. Like, you know, better be have. Danes, yeah, we do love to watch Better Be Have any chance we get, but that's just a tune-up fight. Yeah. Uh, Oakley Glavatsky is a competitive fight on paper. Uh, Oakley is a, a little better than a two-to-one favorite, but Glavatsky is live there, I think. But, you know, Ortiz Hooker, that's the one that holds the most appeal. I mean, Ortiz hasn't faced any real contenders yet. Uh, Mauricio Herrera was a faded fringe contender by the time they fought. Antonio Orozco, he's okay, but I wouldn't quite call him a contender. Same with Brad Solomon and Samuel Vargas. Hooker is the best opponent he's faced yet, but Hooker is moving up from 140. I just have a really hard time picturing how he wins this fight. Ortiz is that good. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm not sure anything next week quite merits must-watch live status right. for me. Right, right. All right, uh, let's look at some news. And this week's news main event features one of our favorites, Mr. 
after Gary Russell Jr. Um, according to the sanctioning body whose belt he holds, uh, the featherweight has agreed to terms for his annual defense, uh, this time against undefeated Ray Vargas at a date and site to be specified. Uh, when he defended against Tugnayambiar last February, early in February last year, yeah. uh, we were optimistic that the fact that he was active so early in the year meant that we would see him more frequently than usual in 2020. Alas, one month later, COVID had other plans. Uh, Russell gets a lot of heat from media and from fans for the infrequency with which he appears. But you and I have spoken with him a few times. Dude just marches to a beat of a different drum, man. He's just got his own priorities in life. Um, Thoughts on Vargas as an opponent, assuming the fight does indeed get made. Uh, and what is your over-under on how many months afterward until we see him in the ring again, assuming he wins? Yeah, well, you know, like, we'll, we'll just never know if Russell might have fought a second time last year if COVID <laughs> hadn't <laughs> happened. Um, the fact that boxing did return for pretty much the whole second half of the year and he didn't fight makes me lean toward guessing it was going to be a standard one-fight Mr. Gary Russell year regardless. Um, now he's headed toward his first fight of 2021, probably somewhere in the May range. Uh, so I'd say him only fighting once in 2021 is at least a minus 300 favorite. Uh, I'd set the line at 10 months between this fight and his next one. Yeah. Uh, as for the matchup with Vargas, he's a very good fighter. He's skillful, tricky, never been beaten. This is a test for Russell, I think, but... Man, the styles here. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah. we, we don't know yet if this fight might land on Showtime and whether yep. it does or doesn't goes a long way toward determining how much shit I talk about the potential for an <laughs> ugly fight. Um, but look, in all seriousness, we all know this could be a total stinker. Vargas's game is boxing, moving, holding. He's very good at it, uh, but it can be a real chore to watch. And Russell is not exactly an extreme risk taker either, though he's certainly more aesthetically pleasing than Vargas. So I like the fight in terms of it meaning something and advancing the career of one of these guys. Stylistically, it ain't Gaddy Ward. Uh, it, it isn't even Joe Gaddy versus Andre Ward. Uh, could 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 be a tough hang. Uh, and, and I will walk that back a bit, of course, if it lands on Showtime. <laughs> Um, a few notable items for our news undercard. Uh, first of all, our condolences to John Molina Jr. and to Jarrett Hurd, as well as their families. The fathers of both Molina and Hurd passed away this week. Our deepest condolences go out to them. In other news, Tyson Fury is continuing to pour cold water on the notion that his reported two-fight deal with Anthony Joshua is close to being finalized, telling IFL-TV that he has stopped training and is drinking, quote, 8, 10, 12 pints of lager a day, uh, which is something of a contrast from what Brandon Lee was saying to us a couple of days ago about always needing to remain in (laughs) shape and ready to fight. Uh, But then, uh, this is Tyson Fury. Uh, And in Concerning but inconclusive news, New Zealand police have alleged that heavyweight Joseph Parker is linked to a major international drug conspiracy, claiming that he played a role in the importation of methamphetamine by transporting and changing currency. Uh, He has not been charged and denies all involvement. Uh, Kieran, a small but eclectic news undercard there. Any (laughs) thoughts? Uh, the Joe Parker thing is weird. Uh, like you said, he hasn't been charged. Um, and it's, he's incidental to another investigation for a 
case that went down two years ago and his name had been you know sort of redacted from from anything to do with the the case and i guess that redaction ran out or something uh and so i i don't know he, he does deny it vociferously but also says he just wants to move on not sure where the truth lies uh we all fell in love with Joseph Parker a little bit, so mm-hmm. last year. So hopefully that that isn't serious and and that that's something mistaken there. Uh, as for Fury, ah, who the hell knows? It's um, he's since been doubling down on that. Actually, I even just saw before we started recording uh, him saying, "You know what?" He goes, "I could up my intake to 18 pints of lager a day, and I'll still beat Anthony Joshua." Mm. Um, it feels as if he and his and his buddy Billy Joe Saunders are having a bit of fun trolling people, I think. Uh, Saunders apparently tweeting the other day that he had torn his scrotum, uh, which apparently is hilarious, allegedly. <laughs> and uh, it certainly led to Eddie Hearn complaining that he's been fielding lots of calls from media asking if indeed Billy Joe Saunders has ruptured his scrotum. Um, I don't know. I just think Tyson Fury gets bored. I think when he's not fighting um, and he's he's trying to put some pressure on, I suspect, to get the whole thing done because he's a guy who needs to be in the ring and he wants to get it on, get on with it. And uh, he has a peculiar sense of humor at the best of times. And I think I think that's probably all that's going on here. Yeah. Uh, um, if, if I may uh, double back quickly to the to the Parker item, I just uh, want to mm. note that uh, if he is indeed involved in this meth scandal, it would explain why he hasn't done a Breaking Bad parody video on social media yet. He <laughs> would be wise to steer clear of that particular subject matter. Oh, uh, you were just dying to say that, weren't you? Just I have to bring up Breaking Bad in every conceivable <laughs> conversation. It had been a little while. <laughs> Pro- true. Probably at least like a day since I mentioned Breaking Bad to somebody. There you go. Did you? You're not a Family Guy watcher, are you? Particularly, I am not particularly. I've seen it here and there, um, but uh, is the there reason any... I yes, I think about this because whenever I see this particular scene in this episode, I I think of you. It's him, and so Peter Griffin, the main character, is lying in bed watching television, and he's watching Breaking Bad, and this message just comes out from the TV, and it's like this hypnotic hypnotic message, and it goes, "You will love Breaking Bad." Like I will. <laughs> You will decide it is the greatest television show that has ever been created, and you will spend your entire time insisting that all your friends watch Breaking Bad, <laughs> and the only thing that is remotely close to it is The Wire. <laughs> like, oh, oh, my God. Well, see, clearly clearly that's inaccurate, because I, I don't go around telling anyone they need to uh, watch The Wire. Right, but, you know, the rest of it is awfully close. <laughs> yes, it sure uh, is. Uh, all right. Uh, finally, some fight announcements that have been made and that are worth touching on. Luda Bella is launching a women's boxing series called Broadway Bro- Boxing Presents Ladies Fight to be streamed on UFC Fight Pass. The first edition on April 23rd will be headlined by Heather the Heat Hardy against Jessica the Cobra Kamara. Uh, Juran Ancajas will reportedly be defending his junior bantamweight belt against Mexico's Jonathan Javier Rodriguez on April 10th on Showtime from the Fight Sphere at Mohegan son but the announcement that i know will have your juices flowing eric is the pay-per-view card from jalisco guadalajara on june 19th entitled tribute to the kings featuring omar chavez julio cesar chavez jr and in an exhibition bout julio cesar chavez senior against hector camacho jr you can't wait can you (laughs) hey Uh, i i have no jokes for chavez senior versus camacho jr it's like how political satirists had nothing to work with in recent years because the reality was more like a wacky satire than anything they could dream up. 
how am I going to make a joke about Chavez Sr. versus Camacho Jr. that's funnier and more absurd than the fact that Chavez Sr. is fighting Camacho Jr.? The universe is collapsing in on itself. I, I, I don't think I have anything to say about it. I will comment on the Heather, the Heat Hardy, Jessica, the Cobra, Kamara fight, though. Heat is a better movie than Cobra, so that means I'm picking Hardy to win. Nice. It's as good a system as any for that's picking good. fights. This, again, the kind of analysis you will only get on this podcast. Yeah, all let's right. see Sergio Mora do that with all of right? his boxing knowledge. Yeah, what does he know? All right, uh, let's finish off with uh, it is top five list challenge time. It is my turn to give you a challenge. It's not really a challenge this time. I was going through all kinds of options uh, for what it might be. I thought about something that related to Brandon Lee's win. I thought about something that related to the Chocolatito Estrada rematch. Without giving away what those ideas were, safe to say there will be opportunities to return to those lists again. Uh, this one is a an audible in response to the situation on Saturday. It's a layup for you, actually. Hmm. Um, far less of a challenge than an opportunity to talk about a great fighter and share some insights with listeners. It occurs to me that we probably have a good many listeners who weren't even alive when Marvin Hagler walked away from the sport in 1987. They know him by name and reputation, of course. They have for sure seen his fight with Thomas Hearns that you mentioned uh, or you know, discussed the, the fight with Ray Leonard. But as you have pointed out, that was just a small part of his oeuvre. Um, while he's best known for being part of the Four Kings, he had a total of 67 professional fights, of which 64 were against people not named Duran, Hearns, or Leonard. So your challenge, such as it is for next week, is a simple one. Pick five of them. They can be his best, your favorites, simply the ones that people are most likely to be able to see on YouTube, the ones that you think they should know about and don't. Up to you. Your call, five Marvin Hagler fights. Simple okay. as that. Okay, so, but it, uh, I, I feel like I, I need a little structure in my life. I like a little guidance. Okay. Uh, no, on four kings <laughs> Right, well, right. So I've got that part, but then just in terms of if I'm focusing myself of what's the objective, I'm, I'm ranking five Hagler fights that, for whatever reason, with whatever in mind, I am recommending that people Yeah, explore. tell you what, yeah, that's exactly, tell you what, that is your structure. Okay. It is. Somebody says to you, well, I know all about his fights with, with you know, like Duran and, and Leonard and Hearns, but the Duran fight wasn't great and the Hearns fight, you know, was fantastic, but he lost the Leonard fight. Why is he so great? What are the fights that I should watch that should teach me why he's so great? You're coming up with five to tell people why Marvin Hagler was so great. Okay, I like that. That's, that sounds like uh, certainly certainly a timely assignment and should be a fun one. Yeah, I think a very fun one, actually. So, all right, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin. We will be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and 